Welcome to the Pin Leader Podcast, where strategic leaders get straight to the topics, strengthening our awareness and sharpening our minds. The Pin Leader Podcast is produced by Roar, a production division of Maze and Associates LTD. Find out more at www.maysassociatesltd.com. Now here is your award-winning host, Dr. Shan DeGore. And welcome to the Pin Leader Podcast. Today, we've got a great show talking about creating home for good, home for good, and addressing homelessness in our local communities. I'm excited to have with me Lynette Hare, who is Executive Director of Neighborhood Properties. She's been the Executive Director for the last three years, but she has more than 25 years experience, and she's been a Vice President of Recovery Services for 16 of those years. I also have with me Alex Thomas-Holland, who is the Director of Community Relations and Development for the Neighborhood Properties, and she has been award-winning and uh, for Innovation Excellence, it looks like, in 2019, and she's a current member of the Board of Directors for the Lucas County Suicide Prevention Coalition, as well as a number of other roles. I can go on. These bios are so impressive, and I really want to get into a little bit about what they do and their passion and how they're working on creating Home for Good. Welcome, Lynette, to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. All right. And welcome, Alex. Hi. (laughs) I'm going to start with Lynette as the executive director. Can you explain a little bit about neighborhood properties? And then I want you to talk about your passion. Okay. Neighborhood properties, we provide housing for people with mental health disorders, specifically the population we serve that are homeless. We do it from a model that's called a permanent supportive housing model. And that means that we provide independent apartments throughout the community here in Toledo. And we have staff that go in to provide supports to help people remain stable in their housing and in the community and connect them to needed resources such as mental health treatment, if it's entitlements from our local job and family services that they would need. We do serve individual households along with families. Sometimes there are additional layers of supportive needs that you have within the community that our staff connect those families to, to help them remain stable with the capability to use housing as a foundation to build on coming out of homelessness. So in a nutshell, that's what the term permanent supportive housing means. It's providing services along with an apartment. And we have one, two, and three bedrooms. We have approximately 500 apartment units throughout our local city in the community of Toledo, Ohio. Mm -hmm. One of the ways to look at permanent supportive housing model is that it's not just housing. It's actually a component of health. Healthcare. It keeps people stable and out of hospitals, out of jails. It reduces recidivism back into the homelessness shelter. Do you know of the program that this is in the Toledo area, and I know we have listeners across a number of states. This program, this work is being done across the United States, is it not? Yes, it is. And we were established in 1988. In the state of Ohio, there were two other agencies at that time that got established as a permanent support house model, and that was in the communities of Cleveland, Ohio, and Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing this type of work since 1988, and we started with a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and it was at a time that across the nation that people were moving people out of state hospitals and into community settings. In addition to the 
permanent supportive housing model as a housing option, we also contract with local group homes in the community to provide people stable housing that cannot live um, independently in an apartment alone by themselves. Mm-hmm. And that that leads me a question to Alex then, because you're working with a peer respite center mm-hmm. and some of the support services that support some of the pieces that Lynette is explaining, correct? Yeah. So part of the permanent supportive housing model is that you do get dedicated staff. So neighborhood properties, we are the property owners. We own the buildings that we place people in physically. We don't own the adult care facilities, but we do own the buildings that we place people in the individual apartments. And we provide you with the supportive staff that works to help you maintain your housing for however long you need it, whether that's on a permanent basis, you know, for the remainder of your life, depending on your age and where you're at, or whether it's temporary until you can get yourself back on your feet. We provide you a case management style staff, recovery specialists, as well as peer staff, which is in the term peers used in our field as someone with lived experience. Very proud that almost half of our workforce identifies as a peer, which is really powerful. It's a lot of times in our profession, you keep your personal life separate. This is completely the opposite. You use those pieces of your personal life to help our residents improve their life or to relate to them, to make a connection on a deeper level to overall benefit the resident and help them move forward. So because we had been working with individuals with lived experience for so long, we took on what's called Emotional Support Respite Care Facility. So that is a national model of of crisis prevention. So it's less related to housing and more related to psychiatric services. So psychiatric crisis services specifically. Most communities, good communities, have crisis stabilization units for people that are having psychiatric emergencies. They have mobile crisis teams for individuals that are having a psychiatric emergency, but you also want to have like a lower level non-medical model of emergency care, which is what the respite care facility is. So it's staffed 100% by people with lived experience. It's non-medical, so there's no doctors or nurses that are going to be in there. We work with individuals ahead of their emergency, so it's a prevention style of service, but it's residential. So individuals can stay up to seven days. It's built similar to like a retreat. Mm-hmm. It's a home-like environment. We welcome people in that are right at the cusp of, of a more serious problem, whether it's a psychiatric emergency, potentially drug or alcohol relapse, homelessness, somebody facing homelessness, maybe job loss. And the staff works with them for however long they need to help improve their life. So it's a less, um, I don't want to call invasive, but it's a less intense uh, diversion to hospitalization. So it sounds like you've got a couple of leaders. And again, you called it peers, but they're mm-hmm. they're really leaders mm-hmm. in their areas because right. they've got the lived experience and they can help guide conversations because they've been there and they understand, uh, which goes to the heart of having being sharp yeah. and understanding, <laughs> yeah, uh, right? And, right. And, and and leveraging that. Now I saw statistics and to really uh, to both of you about about half a million people are homeless in the United States. I saw that from at least from, reported from 2022, but they believe that that number might be um, much higher because the reporting and tracking is very hard. But I noticed a number of 22% uh, were noted as having a, a reoccurring 
mm-hmm. homelessness, tied to mental health, addiction. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that repeat with homelessness, what that looks like, and if there's been changes even after COVID? So a lot of services that neighborhood properties and, you know, we've been doing housing for quite a while and Lynette could probably speak to this more than I can, but over time we want to improve our practices. Best practices and evidence-based practices tend to evolve because the needs are changing and or the solutions need to improve. You know, the solutions may, while they we hope for them to be long-term, they end up being a little bit more short-term or, you know, rapid rehousing didn't work for the masses, but permanent supportive housing might work. Mm-hmm. It's challenging to meet the needs of every single person. And we do know with chronic homelessness, 99% of the time, you're going to have some sort of co-occurring potentially untreated or undiagnosed mental illness or substance use disorder, which is often the result of long-term or chronic homelessness. Lynette, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, one of the things that with the statistics that exist is actually a much higher number of homeless than that. Mm -hmm. Those numbers tend to capture people who are in systems and Mm -hmm. it does not capture doubling up homeless, meaning that I don't have a place to live, but I go live at my relatives and I'm sleeping on the couch. Some people call it couch surfing. Mm -hmm. So the numbers are a lot higher than that, especially with homelessness with students who are in school systems, because a family without a home and you have children, you, you are more likely to have, say, friends or Um, relatives that are say, considering the circumstances, you guys can come stay with us. We may have an extra room or we may have room on the couch. So that the numbers of true homelessness is much higher than that. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought too. I, when I saw that there was a, a little caveat asterisk on there and that they said that they just could not even properly try to track it. They were trying right. and they were doing mm-hmm. their best, but to your point, so individuals right now, Lynette, to your point that you just made could be homeless in some level of definition. They wouldn't necessarily call themselves homeless. Is that right? Correct. Um, there's a lot of terminology now is people will use the terminology of unhoused because it offers more less of a stigma Mm. and it provides some dignity to being homeless without a home. So some people will say unhoused and if they tend to live with friends or relative and they're actually living within a home structure, they are less likely to say yes. There's a lot of people that are not going counted as homeless in those systems that are homeless students. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The stigma. Can you address that? Because I know when we, I travel quite a bit around the country, mm-hmm. and depending on what city I'm in, I see uh, sheltered and unsheltered. Some of the terminology I, I hear, mm-hmm. and a number of people, depending on what city, big city you're in, it's not unusual to have someone right outside a shop or right there on the sidewalk or around the sidewalk that's unsheltered and homeless. What do you see in differences as you look at your program, uh, this particular region uh, compared to some of the other ones? Because I know you must go to conferences and Mm -hmm. and talk with others. Uh, What are you seeing or what are you hearing? I will actually, if if you could address that, Alexandria, because we're just coming off of a week and going into a new week where we are working with a local news station here 
for providing coverage and going out into homelessness camps here in our community. And in our community, it is, I would say it's, it has taken a turn to start looking like bigger city homelessness uh-huh. that I would say years prior, it didn't necessarily look that way. And I put look in air quotes. There was a couple things that I think I, I that I believe led us to this point. We have been we as I say we as an individuals in the community working around the unhoused population and people experiencing homelessness have seen an increase a growing crisis over the last couple of years. I would say over the last two years, it's there have been statistics put to that. So forty to fifty percent of individuals experiencing first time homelessness. That's an increase of. 40 to 50% experiencing first-time homelessness. There's more individuals experiencing homelessness in our city and in our county than ever before. So our shelters are full. The shelters that we do have, the family shelters that we have, we often, within the peer respite, we have the emotional support line. We receive calls onto the emotional support line from moms with five or six kids and they're staying in their car because the shelters are full. The family shelters that they are supposed to be housed at or that they have opportunities to be housed at, they just don't. And there's wait lists, you know, very long, you know, miles long, days long, weeks long. And that's for individuals and that's for families. And so we're seeing that our infrastructure needs a bit of growth to meet the need because the need is growing. So we're seeing more unhoused individuals. That means that there's more encampments that are popping up. There's more individuals that are, and and not just in your typical area where you would think, oh, downtown is where you're going to find those encampments. Our staff go out into the community, and and like Lynette mentioned, there's going to be a series of stories that follow some of our staff that go into the community. And while we won't disclose where these encampments are for obvious reasons, they're in some areas that you wouldn't imagine. They're hiding essentially in plain sight. You just don't you know, you don't think to look for that. There's more and more of those groups of people creating homes because there, there's the need is just there. There's nothing else that they can do. There's a large amount of the population, again, that may not identify as experiencing homelessness, but, you know, we know may likely qualify or have qualified at some point within the last six months. That's also important. There may be someone that is sleeping on a friend's couch, but they're at risk of not having that couch two days later or three weeks prior, they were on the street. And so at some point within the last six months, they did qualify for some sort of service related to someone experiencing homelessness. And that number is growing. Um, When it gets colder, you have more people that are finding creative ways to, to get housed, which may be in an abandoned home or in a building as well. So the need is is growing. More individuals are entering into homelessness and entering into our system if they can, because again, our system, the infrastructure of our system doesn't technically have the capacity to meet it. I believe, and Lynette, you'll have to, I believe the statistic is for every 40 people in the state of Ohio currently, there's only one affordable housing unit for every 40 Mm. individuals. Mm. And that's in the state of Ohio. So that's not just within our county. And that's not unlike any other states as well. There's other states that the need for affordable housing, affordable housing and and evidence-based housing, so more long-term housing and permanent supportive housing is an evidence-based practice. So evidence-based housing is also very important for somebody that's experiencing chronic homelessness. You may house them 
But unless you're addressing the reasons that their homelessness continues to co-occur, you know, the result may be the same in the end. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you have, uh, when you look at staff and you're looking for individuals to come and help this population, Mm -hmm. what type of leadership qualities do you look for? And I know you mentioned the peer group because Mm -hmm. those with lived experience, but what are the qualities of those that are working with this population that you're looking for that they need to have? So I'll share from a direct staff perspective because I do supervise many direct staff and then I think Lynette, it would be helpful if you could share from the leadership perspective. I look for someone that is non-judgmental and it's it's important to say that and and I think individuals ideally want to be non-judgmental but it's really a practice and you you can say or identify as being non-judgmental but are you practicing mm. non-judge being non-judgmental? That's very important. Somebody that is willing to be understanding and empathetic to someone, no matter what is happening. Sometimes we're and we're all human beings. You know, if we face someone and we know they're not being truthful with us or they're not telling the truth, sometimes it's hard not to take that personal. We need to have individuals that keep at the top of their mind. You know, why is someone not telling me the truth? Well, they've had to create a life of survival for so long. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe that's what it is. There's things that have happened to them in their life. You need to have that trauma-informed approach and lead with it at all times, as well as being non-judgmental, which I believe is a practice. That's something that takes a bit of time to learn and to assess and to really do and put and put into practice. It's something that I feel like me as a supervisor and a leader, I have to live by every day. I have to show those that I supervise what that looks like mm-hmm. um, and then expect the same from them and then teach in those moments as well. Excellent. Lynette? Yes, I'd say from a leadership standpoint, Um, You have to be able to navigate through policies and procedures that take into account the culture of poverty um, and make sure that you have policies and procedures that are not punitive, although there's rules and regulations that people have to follow. And I say that, and I'll add to that by saying one of the things we do once a month You have five days to pay your rent, then you get a late fee according to the lease. That's standard in the lease. However, there are times when individuals that live in poverty may make decisions about how they spend their money that month that won't necessarily go for their rent. It could be the that someone within their family had an unexpected event. They're helping out that family member because, again, through the lens of poverty, human relationships is the most valuable asset. So what we do as an organization related to policies is before we would be like other landlords and say, you didn't pay your rent, you're getting a three-day notice, you're out of here. We bring people in, set up a payment plan, something that's affordable while keeping them accountable as a tenant so that they can move forward and not lose their housing. So I would say you have to have empathy and be willing to not just go strictly by you didn't follow this policy and procedure back to homelessness you go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's powerful. I think that even if you weren't working with vulnerable populations, that's just good business sense mm-hmm. if you're working with teams mm-hmm. um, to yeah. have that non-judgmental and to have that. But I think it's 
to be able to understand the rules and have your policies, but know that there are circumstances um, that dictate a a different approach. I I think there's a a time and place for that, and it sounds like you're applying it, especially with those vulnerable populations that are really looking to you to help guide them. Um, My last question for you is really if, if you know of someone or if someone isn't thinking about like I might be homeless in the next couple of uh, weeks, mm-hmm. you know, what do you suggest that people do or if they have someone they love or care about or what do you suggest that, you know, what, what advisement so they can help lead and guide? Um, so, you know, there are resources in our community. You can call 211, but you can also call directly into our office and be linked with a PATH outreach technician, which is someone that will come out to you wherever you are. Uh, meet with you and talk to you about your circumstances, see where you are with your housing, if you're at risk of losing your housing, or if you have, in fact, lost your housing and you're trying to get back you know, on the path to being housed. That's always the first step that we recommend. One of the challenges uh, with individuals experiencing homelessness is some of the expectations. I wouldn't say that they're too high, but you have to have your ID and you have to have your birth certificate and you have to have, you know, all of these things. And those are very important. We know that. We know that in a system, you need to have those things to identify yourself to then receive services. When you're experiencing homelessness, though, it's hard to hold on to most things. You know, people are often losing some of their most prized possessions or most important possessions. And so really having those things readily available is also really helpful if you're a family member and maybe that family member is struggling with substance use, so you're not willing to allow them in your home. Maybe hold on to some important items that they may very well need in the future. Maybe be willing to help them connect themselves to to um, resources. We know that sometimes people have to set a boundary, but still being open to help them as best you can, I think is what we see gives people a higher chance to get housing quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, Also provides them with a little bit of hope. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people go through this alone and it's really challenging. So we are that support system for them. Oftentimes we become family for them. We did just house a family for the holiday and our local news media network run that story, ran that story. And it was, it was both beautiful and also sad to see that we really became that family for them, you know. And Lynette, do you have any final thoughts on that too? Powerful. I I would just, you had asked um, about statistics earlier in the, the homeless population. I would say just in our population of people who have the psychiatric disability disorders is that we currently have a waiting list and probably developing housing is a big issue in the forefront for us with our strategic planning. And we offer the data in the community, we could house and use 50 more additional units of apartments for housing for folks. So, and that's just with the population we serve. That's not the other populations that do not fall into having psychiatric disability disorders. So I would just add that to it, that the need in our local community exists and it's a challenge. Affordable housing altogether is a challenge. It's a national crisis. Yeah. Yes. It sounds like a a crisis that easily solved. And I know with COVID probably exponentially went higher. Uh, So I I can't thank you both enough to coming on to the podcast and really sharing um, how you're trying to create a home for good for a number of individuals that are facing so many challenges. Thank you so much, Alex. And thank you so much, Lynette. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me.
Thank you everyone for listening to the Pen Leader Podcast. Remember, these topics are so critically important to our local communities as well as national. And uh, we're strengthening uh, the need to help support these services. And if you've got any thoughts, please share them at our info at maysassociatesltd.com. We welcome your suggestions and topic ideas. Until next time. The Pen Leader Podcast is hosted by Dr. Shan DeGore and brought to you by Mason Associates LTD, creating customized solutions for growth in the areas of leadership development, strategic planning, and culture building. Find out more at www.maysassociatesltd.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Pen Leader Podcast and share with others.